Welcome to The Occasion. I'm your host, Jennifer Perrine, and this is episode six. The Occasion is a themed poetry show featuring interviews with poets who offer a selection of their greatest hits, read poems written specifically for the occasion of the show, and recommend some of their favorite poems by other authors. So a little of something old, something new, something borrowed, and something true. Before we get started, I want to thank everyone in our community who's pulling together creating new programming, and keeping KBU not just on the air, but also fresh and relevant. The station is closed right now, which means we're all recording from home, and it means we also had to cancel our spring membership drive earlier this year. If you're in a position to give, we hope you'll donate online at kboo.fm to keep this volunteer-powered, listener-supported community resource alive and well. And now, on to the show. It's July 2020, and the theme for this month is Anthem. Our guest tonight is Xinyi Pai. Xinyi Pai is the author of several books, including Enso, Ozarks, Adamantine, Sightings, and Equivalents. From 2015 to 2017, she served as the fourth Poet Laureate of the City of Redmond, Washington. Her personal essays have appeared in City Arts, Tricycle, Seattle's Child, and Yes Magazine. She's been a Stranger Genius Award nominee in literature and lives and works in Bitter Lake, Seattle. More information about her work is available at www.shinyipai.com. Welcome, Shinyi. Thank you. So this month's theme is Anthem, and I'm hoping you can start us off with a poem or two of yours so we can hear how that theme has shown up in your poetry in the past. Sounds good. Uh, so I'm going to share with your listeners a poem called Same Cloth. It was uh, written a few years ago in response to a hate crime that occurred on um, the east side here in the city of Redmond. And um, at that time, uh, the woman that I referenced in this poem, Leona Coakley Spring, she, she's a business owner who owned a consignment shop. And she was visited by a young man who abandoned uh, some, some of his belongings in her shop and when she went to look through them to try and return those belongings to him after he was gone she found that he had left her a Ku Klux Klan robe. So this piece is a response to that uh, incident and event in the community. Same Cloth, a poem for Leona Coakley Spring. The white robe, the length of rope, a pointed hat, hate symbols, evidence of a message much louder than go back to where you came from. There are people here who will hurt you. A veiled threat that burns bright as any wooden cross 
planted in the earth, as if to stake a claim. What if we were to sow seeds of solidarity for a stranger, public victim of a hate crime, the black business owner who believed the best about another human, instead of recognizing the glory suit for its cut out eye holes, saw a choir robe to sing the holy gospel, to know this neighbor by her name, to recover some deeper meaning of clan. And another piece that I'll share from you, which is from an older collection, uh, is a poem called Bamiyan. And this is from my book, Adamantine, which came out in 2010. And um, Bamiyan is about the destruction of the giant Bamiyan Buddhas in um, the Valley of Bamiyan in Afghanistan in the year 2001. Uh, the Taliban destroyed these religious monuments that had been there for centuries. Bamiyan. In the pink sandstone cliffs of the Koebaba Mountains, spent rocket casings, steel support rods and shrapnel surround a pair of yawning outlines. Carved from rock, cave murals coated in dust and soot, a spray-painted phrase from the sacred Quran, the just replaces the unjust, assailed by artillery and heavy cannon fire, faces hacked off, then dynamited under Talib rule, and yet it remains, nothing can't be blown up. I wanted to go back to the, the first poem that you read, Same Cloth, when I was looking at your book. And so one of the first poems in that book that caught my eye was Same Cloth, I think because that poem as a physical object is so eye-catching for listeners. It's embroidered on fabric um, with, with these exposed kind of loose threads I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your process of both creating the poem and the object, if, if the poem came first and then the object, or if they came together simultaneously, and, and also how you chose that medium, I guess, to express the poem through. Sure. So in 2016, um, that incident that involved Leona happened in Redmond, and at that time, I was uh, the poet laureate for the city. And so when it happened, I felt that I needed to respond very quickly to it in some way. I felt that as part of my role um, in, this, in this sort of civic poet type, you know, position that it seemed very important to, to write, write a poem, to write a statement in solidarity of this community member. And so I probably wrote it within a week of the event happening and um, shared it with my um, my collaborators at the city, the, uh, the city staff, art staff, and um, we had a conversation about what might be the best way to share that poem back to the community. We talked about um, circulating it somehow during African American Heritage Month in February, and as these conversations drew out, what I realized was that the marketing department of the city felt uncomfortable with circulating the poem at that time because the poem included details of the uh, investigation that was going on by the police. And as such, they didn't feel that it was appropriate at that time to share. So, um, you know, half a year goes by, the criminal investigation comes to a close. Um, they don't find the person who abandoned the Ku Klux Klan robe and Leona decides to close her store. Uh, the police actually returned the Ku Klux Klan robe to her as the evidence and she ends up burning it. And um, I learned that a, a little bit late in my own process because um, while, you know, 
there was this period of the investigation being underway, I thought about all the different ways in which I might want to express this work in the world. You know, I thought about, you know, would it make sense to print it as a broadside and circulate it, you know, as like something that could be handed out uh, around town or in the library or, you know, what, whatever that sort of circulation method would be. And I had begun to just think about the idea of what would it mean to like reclaim the textile. And I, I began to develop this idea around, well, what if I asked her for the robe and then did something with that material and the next thing I know she's burned it. So, <laughs> so I had to really think a little bit about, well, what would some other iteration of that work be? And I had some conversations with um, a staff member at the art center on the east side, Vela, Vela East Side Arts. And um, she, she said to me, she's an African-American woman, she, she talked to me about the idea that if I were to use, you know, a, a white colored canvas that was so directly referential to the robe that it could um, create a reminder of that trauma and that it might make sense to explore other kind of materials that could evoke a different texture. So, you know, that conversation really helped me to think about um, what the work could be. And so um, I consulted with a textile artist and um, talked to her about how to fabricate the piece and ultimately had her produce it for me. Um, but we decided to go with a silk organza with this red thread um, that basically acted as the cursive handwriting for the poem itself. And Ultimately, when I shared it with the city, we also talked about how it could be part of maybe a more complex conversation than simply just having an exhibition of an object. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the plan that we came up with and the Art Center played a role in it too, particularly this wonderful staff member, Nicole Baker, we discussed the idea of um, displaying the textile at a, a summer arts festival that takes place in Redmond every summer. Uh, it's called So Bazaar. And we would basically host an interactive embroidery booth, uh, myself, uh, Nicole, and some volunteers, with the idea being that the textile piece, same cloth, would be shown, and that we would also have an embroidery station where people could drop in and basically make their own embroideries. And uh, to kind of seed that work, I curated lines from poems from, uh, from people like Langston Hughes and Elizabeth Alexander and Stacey Anshin poems on racial tolerance and also took phrases from uh, the city of Redmond's cultural inclusion resolution so that there were these phrases that were kind of templated out for people that when they came to the booth they could actually stitch these lines around racial mm -hmm. tolerance and embody that you know uh, expression or action in themselves and then take that with them. Were they also able to add their own Phrases yes, to, oh, that's yes cool. they, were, they were able to add their own if they didn't want to use any of the phrases at all and just, you know, <laughs> like write or something for their parents or because we had children, we had lots of different people show up and uh, it was ultimately just about, you know, engaging with the public. Yeah, I love that. I wanted to go back to something that you had said about in the process of moving from, you know, trying to reclaim this object to choosing a different kind of fabric or a different way of approaching that embroidery so as not to maybe re reproduce trauma or reopen wounds. I'm curious if that experience with, with that feedback that you received and that making of that one object has carried over into your other work as you think about the ethics of how to, how to make trauma visible or in that case even tactile without reproducing it or reintroducing wounds rather than maybe healing them has that shown up in other places too or 
Wow, that's that's a really big question. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think that there's an answer to it. So um, you've seen my book Enso, mm -hmm. and um, the the central poem in that book revolves around the death of a squid on a uh, on on a squid a squid fishing expedition, basically that. I organized for an employer of mine. And on that particular expedition, there was a photographer on board the boat who took many pictures of uh, the guests on the boat that night um, fishing. And, you know, uh, when uh, squid was finally pulled out of the water, it, it became the focal point of a lot of the photography and the documentation as this animal very slowly died in front of my eyes. So it is, you know, a central thread or story in uh, the poem, um, the poem's narrative. And rather than fully recreate that experience for a reader, um, I chose to uh, curate in some images that I thought could be more elliptical or poetic. So the curator of that event that I produced was on board the ship and he had it in his mind that he wanted to make some uh, squid prints or sort of traditional Japanese gyotaku. So these are kind of documentary <laughs> style ink prints, one might say, like, um, you know, a fisherman in Japan would basically catch a big fish and then to commemorate or show proof, they would ink it and then make a print out of it. And then you have this thing that's a giant fish print. Mm -hmm. So the curator on board our boat uh, also took, uh, took this, some of the squid that we caught and we had, uh, he, he brought Strathmore paper, this kind of fine drawing and watercolor paper in order to make prints using the, the dying bodies of the squid. So yeah, really upsetting. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I opted instead of showing the graphic photographs of the of the of the last you know moments of the squid's life, actually using the squid prints, which are quite beautiful. They include these kinds of gold inflected and black uh, ink drippings, and I felt that using that gesture, moving towards that gesture versus the photo documentary realistic portrayal felt like the better choice. So yeah, in your question about, you know, trauma, I think absolutely it makes me relate to trauma in, in a more thoughtful way. But I appreciate that answer so much. I, I think I asked the question because it's something that I often struggle with too, is, is how do I walk that really tenuous line? And I think that that example is another one that just shows that there are opportunities that just requires a, a depth of care and consideration that yes. um, can be really tricky. I did want to ask you about the other poem that you read. And I feel like, I think for most listeners, the, the kind of anthemic quality of same cloth is probably fairly apparent in that call for, for solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, as you think about the other poem that you read in relationship to those, that destruction that's depicted in that poem, how are you thinking about Anthem in relationship to, to that work? Sure. Yeah, so I feel like, you know, Bamiyan is this poem that explores um, religious difference and also the, the sort of destruction of monuments or the things that we think are everlasting or have a certain kind of immortality beyond man. And there is a is that sort of, you know, Buddhist inflected perspective too of not attaching too much to the object or the monument in that 
if the monuments are already empty or in some way they don't exist, then what are we grieving except for nothingness? And so, yeah, I know that it's, it's maybe a little bit more of a, a in, indirect sort of reflection upon the theme. Um, but I think in my thinking about the theme today, you know, I, I did a little bit of looking at the different definitions of what uh, anthem can be, you know, songs of praise, songs of celebration and the holy or the sacred that sometimes incorporate call and response. Certainly also there's an element sometimes of uh, anthems being thought of nationalistic or uh, patriotic. And, you know, we are living in these times when it is very difficult to be nationalistic and Certainly during this period of pandemic, it's a period of going inside and being reflective. And so this poem, Bamiyan, I kind of put it in the category of that reflection upon the sacred, even when it is lost or no longer. What I love about that take is, I think so often we tend to think of things that are anthemic as being maybe monumental, even in the way that you describe statues being you know, things that are meant to be persistent throughout time that we kind of turn to again and again when we want to um, achieve a kind of national or patriotic solidarity and to kind of undercut that with, I, I suppose, that Buddhist perspective of, you know, these are merely, merely objects, even if they're objects that we infuse with, you know, a great kind of uh, meaning. They're, they're still just objects in the end and they're impermanent too. <laughs> yes, the notion of permanence is impermanent. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. I think what, well, maybe one last question I'd like to ask about the, maybe both of these poems is there was something that you wrote in the preface to Same Cloth. And, and so you, you asked, you know, what is my responsibility as a poet to raise my voice? And I think especially because you just mentioned this moment that we're in where it feels very hard, if not sort of outright wrong to, to feel nationalistic. How do you think about that question? perhaps now versus when you were writing that same cloth or, you know, has it changed or are you still feeling similarly about that idea of the responsibility of the poet to raise, raise their voice? Yeah, I think the responsibility feels uh, even more urgent now. I think when I wrote same cloth, you know, I have written about social issues in the past and uh, labor and criminality and other socially related topics, but I, I do sometimes keep the personal out of it. And there is an essay that goes along with um, same cloth that sort of puts in context that in some way, my response to what happened to Leona as a hate crime was actually a response to a hate crime that had happened to me when I was living in the Deep South, but didn't feel the agency to um, give voice to that experience. And so I think that as the years have gone on and um, I see what's happening in our society and our communities now, um, that urgency to, to use one's voice and to speak out for good, that is, that is much more urgent than it was. For those of you just joining us, you're listening to The Occasion on KBOO Portland. I'm Jennifer Perrine, and we're talking with Shinyi Pai. I asked Shinyi to write a poem specifically for the occasion of the show, so you all are about to hear a brand new poem. The Empty Zendo for Bill Shuffle. When is the hall never not vacant? Alone in my cottage, I think of my teacher, gone now two years. Listen for the sound of the inverted bell. A Tibetan bull sings 
while I study the interiors of other human habitations transmitted over computer cams, the Sangha divided now more than ever, I will practice for as long as I am able. Could you just share a little bit about your process of writing that poem? Uh, yes, so I'd had it in mind that I had an assignment um, to okay. write, <laughs> to write, you know, an anthemic related poem for this meeting today. And, you know, I have thought about it for many weeks, you know, since we started corresponding about what that could feel like uh, for me right now in this moment. And that period of time coincided with the anniversary of the death of one of my early meditation teachers who was tremendously important to me. And uh, uh, the second anniversary of his death passed on July 8th. And so it is a period of time, uh, you know, where it, it reverberates and resonates within me very deeply. And in this period of time, I've been doing sitting meditation with a Zen teacher who uh, actually has a community on Salt Spring Island in uh, British Columbia. So it is a very different way now of gathering together as a community. Uh, nobody is in the Zendo. It's, it's, it's completely empty and devoid of people, but, but metaphorically too is also empty. We're all alone. And so I think I wrote this poem after the second occasion of sitting with this group. And it was very powerful because one of the uh, community members, one of the Sangha members was delivering a Dharma talk about uh, the meaning of her name, which had been given to her by uh, the teacher. Uh, he's the poet, Peter Levitt, who's an extraordinary author and translator. And, you know, she, she talked about the meaning of uh, her name, which she talked about in the context of the metaphor of persist persistent rain. And she talked about her practice. And the line that really resonated with me as she was speaking, and I wrote it down, was the notion of practicing for as long as one is able to. And that is very much in alignment with a Buddhist vow that certain practitioners take uh, that is about practicing for the sake of all sentient beings. And this time in which we're living, again, you know, kind of uh, circling back to pandemic, as well as Black Lives Matter and all of the tragedy and loss that has happened in this country, there is this sense for me of the, the practice that we do now to spiritually ground and to care for one another. It, it's not just for our own spiritual development, but is for the sake of all sentient beings. And so it is a very personal anthem in this way. As you were talking about that, I was wondering about the relationship between that kind of personal anthem and the the notion of practice as something that that's sort of repeated or habit doesn't seem quite the right word, but but is persistent throughout one's life. Mm. Um, and thinking of that in relationship to to more public anthems and the way that those are used to sort mm. of reinforce reinforce ideas or or notions or to sort of momentarily build these sort of moments of community. And I'm just curious as you're thinking about this experience of this personal anthem and this personal experience that I guess is, is also shared with the other folks that you have a meditation practice with. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there any kind of similarity there between that sense of ritualized practice in terms of building community? And in what ways does it feel different from that more public anthem that maybe many people are more familiar with? 
Yeah, so I think the key word um, that, that you came upon yourself is the notion of ritual. So um, in any sort of practice, I think there are sorts of the, the structures that make the ritual possible, but then make the container of how you will then practice. And that is for the individual as it is within the sort of um, container of the Sangha or the community. So, you know, it's like from the micro to the macro, you know, the individual existing within the Sangha, which is like a small group of like 12 to 30 people at any time, which then sort of reverberates out to like the greater public. I feel like, you know, in thinking of you talking about how national anthems uh, sometimes uh, reinforce perhaps certain beliefs uh, or perceptions, uh, uh, shared values. I think that those are also very ritualized, right? Like the, the singing of the national anthem before a baseball game or uh, stunned before football too, right? I mean, sporting events. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's everything. <laughs> so <Yeah>. often. <laughs> right. So, uh, I mean, very secular uh, sort of uh, rituals, right? Uh, or traditions. Mm -hmm. And um, my work very much is, I feel like, connected to the idea of uh, ritual making for oneself, but um, for the sake of others. Are there other examples of, of your work that you could share that uh, speak to that, that shared ritual with others? Um, hmm. <laughs> I guess maybe I'm thinking in particular of, and, and maybe you don't think of them as rituals, but I think of some of your site-specific installations, like, yeah, like heirloom. I mean, yeah, right. I think an example that would be suitable is that over the years I've written a number of poems that have been inspired by Yoko Ono's instruction poems, which are these sort mm -hmm. of conceptual text pieces that she originally displayed in Japanese, translated with English on gallery walls. And they were literally um, like these really kind of uh, abstract uh, instructions, um, very conceptual with the idea that the reader or the viewer would complete the poem. So for instance, she had these things called like painting for the wind, uh, painting for the evening light to come through. Uh, she had this uh, fabulous piece that I saw in a gallery in a, in a museum that was like two piles of stones and you had to take one stone from one pile and move it to the other or decide is it going in the joy pile or is it going in the sorrow pile? And so I began to construct and write these series of poems that um, took her titles as inspirations and then kind of um, like uh, riffed off of this idea of the instruction poem. I have one about like house cleaning, one about like herding sheep that have like text written on them. And so those poems are, are very whimsical and I think have an element of ritual to them as well as like a, a, an element of the performative and um, of like the embodiment of the text. Uh, there's a poem that uh, I don't have on hand to read, but one of the poems that I've written is about uh, a, a Japanese ritual for laying your things to rest, uh, very much in kind mm -hmm. of a Shinsho tradition. So it's pretty well aligned in some ways with Marie Kondo. Um, but, but so there, there's this tradition where uh, seamstresses with needles that are broken, um, they want to like uh, pay gratitude, offer gratitude to the needles that have, you know, served them in their craft. And what they do is that they um, lay them to rest in a bed of tofu or jelly, some sort of soft material as a way to kind of uh, put them to rest. And I wrote this poem called A uh, Needle Mass, uh, it's called like 
needle mass for a harikuyo is think, I think what I called it. And um, this idea that it's like a requiem for these broken needles. And I have another piece actually, as I think about it, that is very Mary Kondo related in that I have a young son who is now seven years old. And over the years I've accumulated pieces of his clothing that I'm, I just hold so dear that it's very hard to retire them. And for a long time, likewise, I had maternity uh, items that had been given to me, items of clothing, which sort of installed with some sort of totemic power, like if I should decide to have another child. And it took a long time to decide whether or not to have that second child. And then there was the uh, moving towards being okay with saying goodbye to those items and retiring them and offering them. And so um, there are these poems that are very much about gratitude. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Ritual gratitude, which then become kind of mantras, anthems for how mm -hmm. to practice. Yeah. I love that in those two examples there that you've got one that's very much a, it feels very personal um, or private. And then another one that is in, in sort of riffing off of those um, instruction poems, mm -hmm. that performative act sort of embodies that ritualistic piece that is shared among a group, even if it's, you know, the group members are participating each individually on their own. There's something um, mm -hmm. about that ritual that sort of creates a, a shared experience. And then this other one that's very much a, a private experience, but one that's shared in a different way, I'm sure many people have had that same experience of wondering whether to get rid of this, this thing that holds so much meaning to them or power for them. Sure. I wanted to ask a little bit about those site-specific installations that you've done in the past. And I guess just wanted to learn a little bit more about how you came to engage in that kind of work. Hmm. Okay. So after my son was born in 2013, I went through a period of not writing for probably nearly a year, and it was just what life demanded. And um, when I came back to writing, I was very much a different person integrating these different parts of myself as a, as a maker, as a mother, as a, as a woman. And over the years, you know, previous to becoming a mother, I'd had a photography practice, I'd been involved in bookmaking, and uh, also had a practice uh, occasionally singing or performing. And there were just these things that I knew that I wanted to integrate in myself, um, just as becoming a mother requires the integration of lots of different parts of our identities and our psyches and coming to terms with perhaps our childhoods and our wounds. So it was very much this time of yeah, wading through that soup of I don't know what, but evolving into something yeah. new, evolving into a new practice, evolving into a new person. And um, my son and I and my husband, uh, my family, we would all spend time in this public park in Seattle, uh, Carkeek Park, where there is an heirloom fruit orchard that's over 100 years old that is managed and tended by the Seattle Parks Department and volunteers. And there's not a lot of didactic information available about that site. When you go to the little meadow and grove of trees, there's maybe one park sign that's, you know, really weather beaten and it has a rudimentary map of what the different fruit and nut species are. And there's like a picture of like, you know, the original uh, family that homesteaded that land. And, and there were just a lot of unanswered questions for me about like that place. And 
I developed this idea of wanting to create a visitor's field guide or a family field guide to understanding this place that could illuminate all the beautiful stories that I wanted my little son to know about this land. And this was a period of time when my son Tomo wasn't yet one year old and he was really beginning to um, play with language and sound. He didn't yet have the ability to speak words, but he was very interested in language. And I wanted to come up with a poem that could also be visually beautiful and engaging to him. So what I arrived at was writing uh, a long poem about the orchard. It was site-specific in 26 sections uh, following the structure of the alphabet. So the idea that each title or section could take a letter from the alphabet as its starting point. So uh, A was for antique, like antique apples. B was for bounty. C was for calyx. D was for delicious. E was for I. F was for found, etc. And then each of these words would have, you know, some exposition or some poetry around them that would tell a story. And so I had, you know, this, this long poem, and then I was thinking about, well, how would I want that to express itself in the world? And as I was, you know, spending time in this orchard walking around the trees, I thought, well, you know, I, I got this idea where I thought, you know, the trees, the ripening apples are really just a light sensitive surface. Why couldn't we print on them? Why can't I print on them? And then I got on the internet and did some research and found that there had been um, a, a Japanese orchard that had actually tattooed their apples with light um, by putting a decal or sticker on the skin of the ripening apple and then like you peel it away and there'd be this beautiful design or this kanji mm -hmm. then they would like upsell the apples for like an outrageous <laughs> amount of money and i thought well this could work <laughs> this could work with poetry you know my idea was to have poetry in the trees or words in the trees mm -hmm. and so i experimented with putting some different kinds of decals on um, the apples uh, in the summer of 2014 and you know did a lot of testing and, and had some failures had to figure out which decals how much time in the sun lots of different apple varieties rolling into ripeness at different times and then the following summer i did the entire project uh, as part of an outdoor uh, art exhibition and i also knew that you know the apples wouldn't stay on the trees um, people were picking them eating them there were animals, there was bad weather, and so it just wasn't going to last very long. And also, it would just change so much in a three-month period. So I talked to a friend of mine who is an audio engineer, my friend Tom Stiles, and I asked him if he would go into the apple orchard throughout the different seasons and to um, make field recordings of the sound of the orchard when you know work parties were tending to the orchard or just you know, the sounds of it in spring or summer. And I also made a recording of myself reading that poem mixed with the sounds of the orchard. So that was like my first major work. It was like a breakthrough piece for me after the birth of my son. And I felt like after that, everything has kind of evolved for me in a much more integrative practice. As you talked about the end of that, there were knowing that people were picking the apples, that animals, weather, that just naturally at some point they're going to decompose anyway. <laughs> I'm curious what that was like to experience that knowing that I suppose there's an element of relinquishing control that, that something that you've made is is inevitably going to be dissolved or destroyed at some point and I guess just how you felt about that I, I think especially I'm thinking about it in relationship to some of the other things that you've mentioned in relation to the other poems about impermanence. Yeah it was a really great lesson in giving up control and I think that what was also different about the project was that my sense of time really 
um, change because, you know, it was like this uh, project that took like a year to execute or, or to learn from and to figure out. But then when it came to the final execution, it kind of rolled out over like, you know, a one week to three month period. And um, the environment of the orchard was always changing. I think initially I thought, well, I could try to put individual poems in the trees. And then I thought, well, that's not going to work because you'll just have one word and of, 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 you know, the entire poem. And they'll just like all the word, like it'll be like an erasure is what's going to happen mm -hmm. when the apples start going. So what if it were just, you know, like the individual words, like the, the titles, you know, the sections, and maybe that would be kind of more like visually uh, reinforcing or something. So it was a, work that was very iterative in which I had to let go of control and while I'd collaborated with a lot of different kinds of artists and with like you know municipal entities uh, in working with the city of Redmond like collaborating with nature was like wow like this is this is so different and you know I think um, this relationship to time became very interesting to me too throughout the entire uh, book that is and so I, I talk about time and how it slows down and I think that that was also like reflected in you know having had a child you know this sort of nine ten months of growing the child inside me and then giving birth to the child, giving birth to my son and being on a very different uh, being in a different relationship to time like you know, when is he eating? When is he having bowel movements? Like, and, and then like you have these like, you know, markers of like when there's supposed to be like, you know, certain markers of development with your child. And, and there's so much attention to time and you're trying to control it in that certain context or, or market. And I think that through working with the orchard, I entered into a whole different time that wasn't my time. Do you find that's helping you now in the midst of the, this, this time, which so many people, including myself, have, have named as where time makes much less sense than it used to? <laughs> it really does. Um, yeah, it's, it, there's certainly this sense of timelessness. And um, I don't know if it's informed how I'm doing now, but like I have uh, conversations with uh, my Zen teacher and friend, Peter Levitt, and uh, I ask him, you know, how has your life changed? And it's like, well, life hasn't really changed that much. You know, it's, um, it was always pretty close to home and um, certain kind of, uh, I guess, activities or, or behaviors and um, they haven't radically changed. I, I miss seeing people for sure, you mm -hmm. know, and being out in the world, but also this time of going inwards is, is the thing that everyone needs to do. For those of you just joining us, you're listening to The Occasion on KBOO Portland. I'm Jennifer Perrine, and we're talking with Shinyi Pai. Shinyi, you also brought some poems by other poets, right? I did, I did. Right. I brought um, some Leonard Cohen lyrics and um, some, a poem by a Seattle poet, uh, Kun Wun. So um, I'll read both of those. So this is uh, Leonard Cohen's, um, the lyrics to Leonard Cohen's anthem. Anthem. The birds they sang at the break of day start again, I seem to hear them say, do not dwell on what has passed away or what is yet to be. Ah, the wars they will be fought again. The holy dove, she will be caught again, bought and sold and bought again. The dove is never free. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We asked for signs and the signs were sent. The birth betrayed, the marriage spent. 
Yes, the widowhood of every single government signs for all to see. I can't run no more with that lawless crowd. Ah, but they've summoned, they've summoned up a thundercloud and they're going to hear from me. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. You can add up the parts, but you won't have the sum. You can strike up the march on your little broken drum. Every heart, every heart to love will come, but like a refugee. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And then a poem by Kun Wun, who's an elder in our community here in Seattle. This is from his book, Water Chasing Water, from Kaya Press in Los Angeles. And this poem is called, The High Walls I Cannot Scale, with apologies to Du Fu. Desolate in my Chinatown morning, among the scraps and people sleeping in urine doorways, I ache from the politics of the heart. Pigeons flock together in Hinghe Park, no children to greet them. I walk for my sanity, since alone in my room before dawn, the mind constructs improbable things. The city is humming for profits, and I wait for the porridge place to open, a bowl of sampan porridge adorned with a clump of watercress. The Chinese and I are one, scattered to the four corners of the globe, I have only enough to pay for one bowl. And so my friend, I'm sorry, I must dine alone. Could you talk about what drew you to those, those poems or that song in that poem? Yeah, um, with the Kun Wun poem, you know, the, the piece is very much about solitude and um, being alone. Uh, pigeons flock together in Hinghe Park. There's no children to greet them. It it really spoke to me of this kind of uh, emptiness of the city in pandemic time. And here in Seattle, the Chinatown International District has really uh, taken some hits from the pandemic. A lot of businesses closing, Proud Boys showing up and stickering mm -hmm. the neighborhood. And there's just a sense of what is usually a very vital neighborhood um, really really feeling very, I don't know, like empty, empty of life in a lot of ways. And um, this poem, Kun Wun spent many years, many decades living in the SRO hotels in the International District as, as an immigrant. And I think for me, you know, being an Asian American woman, this pandemic has highlighted for me a lot of anti-Asian sentiments and really I think also made me think about the experience of um, my elders and my peers. And so this piece really spoke to me in that it really is about that reflective quality of, of turning inwards about poverty. And I, I appreciate too the nod that he makes to Du Fu, this ancient Chinese scholar poet who, you know, there are all these like male government appointed scholar poets who like drink with their buddies and write poetry. And, you know, Kuhn's poem is really different because it comes from the margins of living in poverty so that we can only dine alone because it's all that we can afford. And I feel like that's a really powerful statement and, and thing to think about, you know, this sort of solitary hermit who uh, comes out of poverty and, and just the current conditions in which we live. 
in which some of us live. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the song by Leonard Cohen has always been one of my absolute um, favorite songs that exists in the world. He recorded the piece as part of his album that came out in 1992. And it was a period, you know, Shortly, like uh, Tiananmen Square had happened in 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the LA race riots, and it was a time when um, Cohen was, I think, really thinking about uh, the the sort of uh, social state of the world of of you know our country, and the piece is really about um, optimism uh, and the embracing of imperfection, uh, and I think for me. Um, this really iconic lines, there's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. It is something that I feel like is, is very attuned to uh, the notion of the Japanese art of kintsugi. Uh, the idea of these, you know, like porcelain vessels that have been shattered or broken in some way, which are then made whole again by receiving them with gold. And I think, you know, for us now, being in this time of uh, ambiguity and confusion and difficulty that this, this piece by Leonard Cohen is one that, that uplifts me in a different way than some of the work that I've shared today because it, it is complex. It, it, is a, it is a hope um, in, in being able to embrace what is imperfect. I think, especially in, in contrast to that idea of anthems as being sort of this rousing idealized symbol. <laughs> I think it's a, that's a really lovely image, especially with that connection to that art form that just kind of, it both undercuts that idealized notion and also presents another way. You know, that this is another way that we can work towards a, a common goal or work towards a beauty or the other things that we might be after. Absolutely. A kind of healing. Yeah. Reparation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you did choose a song and because you mentioned earlier that singing or some sort of musical performance was also part of your past, but maybe not part of your current practice. I just wanted to kind of open the door to explore that and, and learn more about it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, um, when I started out as a young person, I, I actually had dreams of becoming um, a vocalist, a singer, a professional singer. Things didn't go that way. Uh, I had a really horrible music school audition uh, during my college years, and I think I, that just kind of did me in. But it, it was it was clear that it was like I didn't belong in a place like a conservatory. I belonged in somewhere like a Berkeley College of Music. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think over the years, when there have been like opportunities to collaborate with friends who are musicians or to to sing. Um, I've, I've done it rather quietly, not telling too many people that it's something that I do. But for this particular collection, and so, uh, which came out in March, it's a 20-year survey of my practice across different disciplines, which again has included singing and performance. And so I actually um, worked with a couple of musicians in Seattle and, and commissioned them to write some songs for me, which I then recorded as part of this project. So if people end up... Um, ordering the book. Uh, there is uh, some ancillary content that's available uh, online that you can download with a code that appears in the book. And that includes uh, a couple of songs that I perform with Tomo Nakayama and Levi Fuller of the band The Library, which, are, which is a band here in Seattle as well. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's something that I hope to continue exploring. Um, poetry um, is, 
is absolutely well aligned with song and music in that it's about um, the claiming and reverberation of the human voice. And uh, song is a way to very much embody that, uh, just as reading of poetry is. And it's a very powerful practice that I hope to carry with me. Because you've, you've mentioned music now and made references to different, different kinds of art forms that either you've incorporated into your work or that you just have an appreciation for, I'm curious if, as you think about this idea of anthem, whether it's in a, that more public sense or in a more private or spiritual sense, are there other kinds of artists or creators or, or elders or activists who you think of in relationship to that notion of anthem that have either influenced your own work or you're thinking about it or that you might just recommend to other people? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I feel like Claudia Rankine's work, her book Citizen, like that really speaks to me in a way about uh, political activism and uh, anthem in the term in, in, in the context of, you know, social, social activism. I, I'm, I'm thinking now of books that I've been reading recently. Um, so I, I've, I've been spending a lot of time with uh, Pragita Sharma's Grief Sequence. She's a... California-based poet who publishes out of Wave Books here in Seattle. And um, that book, while it is a very uh, personal document of grief and loss, I feel like I'm reading a lot of books recently about grief and loss <laughs> because it seems to be, I feel like, the, the subject and the anthem of the moment. The other thing that I'm reading is a book that was given to me by a friend that is uh, a collection of poems by the first Buddhist nuns. And uh, it is these Buddhist female practitioners writing about practice and enlightenment and aspiration from centuries ago. And uh, it feels so alive to practice and being in the world today, to being a woman today. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are, those are the things that I immediately think of, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big question. <laughs> do, do you recall the name of that, that last book, the poems by those? early Buddhist nuns. It's called The First Free Women, Poems of the Early Buddhist Nuns. And it's fantastic. Do you want me to read one? Sure, I would okay. love it. Uh, let's see. Another Tissa. So uh, the, the titles of the poems, I believe, are the names of the writers. Hmm. Another Tissa. Find your true home on the path. Find the path right here in the center of your own heart. If you keep searching in the past and searching in the future, you will search and search, but your searching will never end. Do you want another one? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Ooh, okay, this is uh, Anyatara. Rest my heart wrapped in these simple robes you sewed yourself, like a pot of herbs left cooking overnight. That which was boiling has boiled away. That which was on fire has all turned to ash. Yeah, it's fantastic. I feel like I want to read one of these, like, uh, like one poem per week, and then just kind of yeah. let it sink in. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and just those two poems that you read feel like such the, the right poems for this moment to, to contemplate and to, to really sit with. So yeah, I'm excited that you shared that. 
I wanted to ask if you have other things that you're currently working on besides this, this one random poem on an anthem that I assigned to you. <laughs> other things that you've been working on lately or um, that you have coming up in the, the near future that you're excited about. Yeah, so on August 30th, I'm giving a digital online reading uh, with a, a group called uh, Cultivating Poetic Voices. The reading will take place at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And there's a Facebook group started by the Olympia poet Sandy Yanon. And uh, again, it's called Cultivating Poetic Voices. That's the name of the group. I think I have a couple of readings scheduled this fall, but it's all kind of... Uh, up in the air as to whether or not they really happen in person or digitally. And I uh, produce a poetry series here in Seattle for Town Hall. And um, we've been, we, we, we converted doing those live events into podcasts. And so um, we will have a podcast coming up in August, date to be announced uh, with Kun Wun, the poet that I shared uh, before. And Kuhn will uh, give a talk and reading related to uh, his work as it reflects upon themes of displacement, home, and belonging. And that will be a really lovely podcast recording. It'll be at townhall.org, I believe. And listeners can go there to find out more details about when that's going to air. Yes, uh, it hasn't been posted yet, but the series is specifically called Lyric World Conversations with Contemporary Poets, and it's produced by me. Outside of those those events coming up where you're getting to to illuminate work by other writers and share some of your own, are there things that you're working on in your own writing life right now that you want to talk about or are those things best best kept private for now? <laughs> I've been working on a personal collection of essays about my experiences of being a Taiwanese-American woman and uh, reflecting upon uh, gender roles and expectations in my culture of origin and how that uh, does and doesn't belong to me. And it also has a conversation with uh, how I think my relationship thing to those things changed when I became a mother. So it's, it's a loose collection of essays. I've been working on it for like years and I'm mm -hmm. just chipping away at it kind of essay by essay. But some of those pieces are actually going to appear in uh, an online, um, it's hard to describe what it is, Yolk TV. Uh, Yolk TV is a project uh, by Jonathan Spazzato of GeekWire. So he's launching a digital television channel slash literary journal uh, that is really meant to elevate the voices of Asian Americans. And so um, I don't know when exactly that's going to launch, but it's, it's, it's a really interesting channel. It's going to have like music videos, short film, writing. And so uh, they're republishing a number of my personal essays, but they also will be uh, distributing a short video poem that I made with a friend of mine, Scott Keeba James here in Seattle. Um, it's a film that's actually uh, played in a couple of local film festivals and it's a piece called Embarkation. It's about a three minute poem film that is about um, my experiences of uh, going to Taiwan in 2018 to observe a, uh, let's see, a, a traditional folk festival that involved the creation of a giant wooden boat that was, uh, you know, appropriate to like pilot on the seas, but instead they uh, pull it through a town uh, and they load it up with the uh, 
misfortunes and wishes and illnesses of the residents uh, past year. And then they uh, take it out to the beach, they put it on a bed of joss paper and they incinerate it with fireworks in like 45 minutes. So this incredible spectacle and ritual that I was able to observe with a friend of mine who, um, who provided the video footage for it. And uh, it's a piece which I uh, ended up writing a poem about, performing the piece, and um, I had my friend develop it into a video. And uh, it's, it's work that I'm really proud of. Yes, That's and that will be on York TV, yes. <laughs> And, and that'll be available for people to check out this fall? Right? Yes, absolutely. And until that's available, listeners can check out a sneak peek of that video of embarkation at movingpoems.com. Just search for embarkation. Shanit, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for being a guest on the occasion. And thanks to everyone who's listening. May you all be safe and healthy and kind to yourselves and to each other. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's my pleasure. In a stranger's office, you dot the pupil. Black ink absorbing into paper mache. of its eyes.
So